Good morning and welcome everyone. My name is Chris Roberts. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 48, and then chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his, his servant. And then 8 through 12, in that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, watching over their flock by night. And then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior Who is the Messiah, the Lord? This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chris, for our scripture lesson this morning. And uh, as always, we're very appreciative of the, uh, the praise band for what they do for us and leading us in our worship and always do an awesome job. So appreciate y'all. As you get uh, ready for this moment in our service, I just want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to, to make sure you get a bulletin. And in that bulletin is a uh, study guide that we try to provide for you each week to read the scriptures on your own. It's a way to dig in the Bible, make it a part of your daily uh, routine and discipline. <clears throat> so I hope that you'll do that, especially during the season of Lent. We've got a special purpose for that this year. So I uh, hope that you'll take time to do that. Let us pause for a moment of prayer as we ask for God to <clears throat> center us and to open our hearts and minds to his word today. Lord God, as we come in this place and sing your praises and just experience your presence, we ask now that you would help us in our understanding of your word for our lives today. I ask you, God, to enable me to proclaim your word in a way that glorifies you and lifts you up and draws us all closer to you. And come, Holy Spirit, opening our minds and our hearts to the power of your word upon our life today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're beginning the series that we know as Lent. It's those days leading up to the time of Easter. It's 40 days where we prepare for Easter. And for Lent this year, we're going to be using the Gospel of Luke. We're going to actually be walking through the Gospel of Luke. If you were with us last year, we walked through the Gospel of John during the season of, Luke, season of Lent. And this year, we're going to be focusing on <clears throat> Luke's Gospel. And um, in fact, if you, if you read the study guide that's given to you each week, uh, by the time you reach Easter, you will have read the entire Gospel of Luke. Uh, you know, we give up a lot of things during the season of Lent. Sometimes you give up uh, Diet Coke, you give up sweets, chocolate, Facebook, and all this kind of stuff. But I'm encouraging you to give up five minutes each day to read God's Word. And what a difference that can make in your life. So I hope that you'll take the time to commit yourself to doing that. Today we're going to be beginning a series of sermons that we're calling the Gospel of the Nobodies. Because more than any other gospel in the New Testament... Luke's gospel points to Jesus' concern for the nobodies of society, the marginalized, the pushed down of society, the people who are left to be feeling like they're worthless, that they are invisible, they have uh, you know, nobody that really cares about them. And, of course, all the gospels, they you know, point to this concern that Jesus has about the nobodies. But on, in Luke's gospel, he demonstrates this in almost every single page. And when you think about who are the nobodies and 
the scriptures, um, the word that is used for this, the Hebrew word called Amhar Aretz. Amhar Aretz literally means people of the land. They're the nobodies, according to Israel. Well, if you know your biblical history a little bit, in 586 B.C., when Babylon conquered Israel, they took off most of the Jews, exiled them, and sent them in captivity in Babylon. And while the people, the Jews were there, they kind of assimilated and they intermarried with other cultures, and that's part of the purpose of being exiled. And um, as they, they did this, they, they held on to their Jewish faith, <clears throat> but it kind of got blended. It got mixed around and modified a little bit because of the pagan influences they had in, there in Babylon. Well, later on, when these Jews get freed from Babylon and they make their way back to the Holy Land, the Jews that had remained in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel, they didn't welcome these people back as if they were their long-lost cousins or friends here. They actually viewed them as being almost enemies. Um, these were people that they considered to be unorthodox. These were people that uh, were not practicing the faith in the way that it should be practiced. And so they labeled these people as being Samaritans. You hear a lot about the Samaritans in uh, Luke's gospel. But by the time of Jesus, the term nobodies had been broadened to include all the fringes of society, the people on the fringes of society, such as the marginalized, uh, the people who didn't practice the religion as it should be, those who were sinners and outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, anyone that didn't conform to the religious life in the way that the religious leaders uh, said it should be lived in that day and time were considered to be nobodies of society. And what we find in Luke's gospel is that God cares about these people. In fact, the dominant theme that you hear over and over and over again in Luke's gospel is that God says to the nobodies, you're somebody to me. Even though you've been made to feel marginalized or rejected as if nobody, you don't matter to anybody, you matter to me. I love you and I have come for you. You're somebody to me. You're going to find that on almost every page of Luke's gospel. Now, there's another thing that you're going to hear, another message that you'll hear in Luke's gospel as well. And that's about how in God's eyes, those who are somebodies, um, these people who believe they're somebodies are supposed to be about the business of making sure that the nobodies feel like they're somebody. Does that make sense? (laughs) Jesus came to reveal his nature, the nature of God to us. Uh, The God that we say we believe in is defined by Jesus Christ. In in other words, Jesus shows us who God really is. And the God that Jesus portrays to us is a God that cares about the nobodies. God loves, he's concerned about these people who are rejected by society and are pushed down and, and are pushed out by society. And he goes out of his way to try to to reach out to them and to draw them into himself. Jesus said this is his message, his ministry. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost, right? So this is what Jesus reveals to us. Now, what I know is that there are people in this very room here today who feel like you're a nobody. You've been rejected. You've been hurt by others. You question whether you measure up. Um, You wonder... You feel like you're a failure compared to everybody else around you. And what this gospel has to say to you is that you matter to God. You're a somebody in God's eyes. But the truth is, most of us tend to think of ourselves as being somebodies, right? 
Oh, no, we wouldn't admit that. We wouldn't uh, uh, brag about it. But, you know, according to the world around us, in, in the world's eyes, you know, we, we're pretty successful, most of us. Uh, we have a nice home. We drive nice cars. We, we have nice families. We um, uh, go to the right schools. We have nice things. And so, at least on the surface, it, it portrays a sense that, you know, we're somebodies. But to the somebodies of this world, what Luke's gospel is trying to make clear <clears throat> is that you're not really a follower of Jesus Christ unless you understand that part of your mission in this life is to lift up the nobodies, to make sure that the nobodies around you understand that God loves them and that there's somebody, they're valued and loved by God. Again, you're going to find this on every page of Luke's gospel. Now, with that in mind, that basis, uh, let's talk about the text we have before us today. In the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, you find the story of two babies being born. And we know this as being the Christmas story, right? Yeah, we usually read on this, uh, these stories back you know, in Advent, in the fall of the year, and some of you are wondering, why in the world are we reading the Christmas story this morning in this Lent? I mean, what's wrong with this preacher? Uh, I can hear it now. <clears throat> well, in, in order to understand Luke's Gospel, you have to read this part of Luke's gospel because this, this is the prologue. This lays the foundation and sets the stage for everything else that follows in Luke's gospel. And that's really what we're trying to do today. We're trying to lay the foundation for what we're going to be talking about in the next several uh, Sundays together in this journey of Lent. In these first two chapters, the first baby that's born, uh, you remember, is John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the next baby to be born, which, is, of course, is Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be looking at some of the things that happen in Jesus' birth that help us to see who God really is and what God expects of those who claim to be his followers. A lot of what we're going to be covering today are things you already know. So uh, for some of this, some of this for many of you are going to be a, a kind of a refresher course or uh, things you'd be reaffirming what you already know. In Luke chapter 1, we read that the angel Gabriel comes to the town called Nazareth. Now, what do we know about Nazareth? Nazareth was an obscure little village, um, very, very small, and we would say, many of us would refer to that being a place that's on the other side of the tracks. That's how we, most people would refer to it. It's on the other side of the tracks. On the right side of the track was a uh, town that's a three and a half miles north of Nazareth called Sephoris. Sephoris was made up of about 30,000 people at the time of Jesus, and um, it had beautiful homes, uh, luxury villas. It had a marketplace that was just to, to die for. I mean, it was streets. You could actually go and walk the ruins of this, this marketplace in Sephora today. It was just elaborate. And um, it had a great uh, Roman amphitheater there. Anyone who was anybody in Galilee that time lived in Sephora. But across the tracks, the people who lived in Nazareth, these were the people who cleaned the toilets for the people who lived in Sephora. It was, like I said, a tiny, obscure little town, only about 100 to 200 people at the time of Jesus' birth. And um, most of these people um, when, or were uneducated. They were the kind of workers who just janitor, cleaned up, did the, did the chores to take care of the wealthy and so forth. And uh, when, when they made lists of the, the geographical areas back in that town, maps, and they listed all the towns in Galilee, Nazareth didn't even make a list. It's like it didn't even exist. You remember Nathaniel, uh, he's approached by Andrew saying that, Nathaniel, we, we found the Messiah and it's Jesus from Nazareth. You remember what he said? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this is the kind of town it was. It was just a place of, of nobodies. 
I once had a friend who lived in a, uh, a town up in North Louisiana called Belcher. I hope nobody's here from Belcher today. <clears throat> uh, but, uh, you know, you could just imagine what people had to say about folks who lived in Belcher. It's like, <laughs> you know, got 263 uh, gaseous, gaseous people who call that home. <clears throat> uh, and uh, it's got that kind of town, you know. We, Mary is from this little town called Nazareth. And people made all kind of jokes about that. You know, what good can come out of that crazy place? She's around 12 years old. She's of the age, 12 or 13 is when uh, most girls her age were engaged to be married. Uh, she probably could not read or write. She had no formal education. She was destined to be a servant of those wealthy people, those somebodies who lived up in Sephoris. Because Mary was a nobody. But we read in the story how God comes to Mary. God chooses Mary for the most important job of any human being on, the, on this planet to be the mother of his son. Wow. This is why Mary, when she sees her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with, with John the Baptist, uh, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child in your womb. Prior to this, Mary was troubled. She was afraid for her life. I mean, as a uh, pregnant girl who's engaged to be married, I mean, the law was you could be stoned to death. At the the very least, you were going to be ostracized and cast out of your village and your family disown you. So she's frightened and afraid. She goes to Elizabeth, and after being encouraged by Elizabeth, we read how she uh, cries out these words of a psalm. It's actually uh, based on a psalm from Hannah in the Old Testament who was pregnant with Samuel at the time. And, And we call this Mary's Magnificat. Remember this? Uh, Listen to just a portion of what it says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. The word there is Amhar Aretz. He's lifted up the Amhar Aretz. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Do you hear the, the contrast between the nobodies and the somebodies here in her Magnificat? Now, what you have to pay attention to in Luke's gospel is this idea that when the somebodies begin to think they're really somebody and they forget that what they have and who they are is really a gift from God, they are setting themselves up for a fall. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So Mary is really echoing this, this prophetic statement here. She's saying that, you know, when the somebodies forget who they really are and they begin to think they're above everybody else, and they're destined for a fall. And Luke wants to make sure you understand this that those who ignore the poor and those who don't care about the needs of others around them and they begin to think that life is really all about me. Those people are going to fall at some point because God is going to lift up the lowly. And the only way that you can avoid uh, this fall that's being prophesied here is you have to ground yourself in the knowledge that what God has for your life, a part of your mission in this life, is to lift up the lowly, is to make sure those around you are considered the outcast, the marginalized, those who are hurting and, and the, un, the invisible, that they know that God loves them. They're a, they're not a nobody. There's somebody in God's eyes. God values them, and God loves them. This, this has to be part of our mission. And when we make that part of our mission, we're actually being used by God 
It's a part of his plan for this world. And when you do that, you actually find the blessings of God come into your life. Luke wants you to understand that this is God's will for your life. So let me ask you the question this morning. Do you struggle with pride? Thinking that you're somebody? I think we all struggle with pride at some point. I mean, even preachers struggle with pride. There are those preachers who love the limelight and they love seeing the congregation get filled with people that come hear what they've got to say. And, and uh, you know, some preachers, that goes to their head. And we're all familiar with those who have fallen from grace and because um, they forgot that to, uh, they were supposed to live a life of integrity or worth the calling that they've been called to. Um, you can't stand up here and preach things and not actually practice what you preach and expect that not to come back to you at some point. So we're all familiar with those stories. Um, I, you know, the truth is, I struggle with pride. I mean, all of us struggle with pride, right? And there's, there's something that I've tried to incorporate in my own life to kind of hold my life in check in this regard uh, as, a, as a pastor. Um, after church is over on a Sunday morning, uh, we go by and we, we're turning off all the lights. Chris usually helps me with this. We go through all the buildings, turning off lights and, and making sure everything's secure, doors are locked. And, and often in the process of doing that, we will see... Uh, Trash and cups left in uh, areas, and we'll see uh, Sunday school rooms and everywhere else. You're just going to see cups and papers and trash on the floor and then tables and stuff like that. And I'm sure none of you here are guilty of doing that, but uh, you know, some, somebody's, somebody does it. And you know, when I was in smaller churches, um, we didn't have a staff that took care of that. I mean, it was up to me to go around and pick those things up. But you know, here at this church, um, we have people that we've hired to do that. And here's what I've learned. <clears throat> this is what I realize about my own self. When I'm going through the buildings and I'm unlo- you know, locking up and things like that, if I think it's beneath me to stop and to pick up those things, and I think it's okay for me just to walk by that and go like, oh, the people we have, they'll, they'll take care of that. And I start feeling that way, then I realize that's the, that's the first sign that something is wrong here. And so I try to make a point to stop and <laughs> pick up the trash that I see outside and inside the church and yeah, listen, that's not because I'm humble. It's because I need to do that to check my own self. So I don't begin to think that, you know, I'm somebody. That's beneath me to do that. I have to tell you this. Um, <clears throat> this is the first church I've ever pastored that actually has a parking place for the pastor. I don't know if you knew that or not, <laughs> but uh, it, it does. It has a parking place. The pastor took me, I was here three months, and the secretary says, you know, you got a parking place out there. I said, really? <laughs> it's kind of cool. But uh, you know, while I appreciate that, I have to tell you, it often makes me feel really guilty, especially um, when it's raining outside, and the rest of you are having to get out of your cars in the rain, and I'm under the carport in there, and I get out, don't have to get wet. Uh, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> you know, and, and so I feel guilty about it. I even told my secretary, Jan, I said, Jan, when it's raining during the week and come in, said, you park under there. I mean, I, I just feel bad that you're out in the parking lot getting out in the rain and I'm under carport here. That's just not gentleman. It's just, it's just not right. And uh, so I told her to do that. <laughs> but the truth is, though, the other day when it was raining, I found myself driving to work going like, man, I hope Jan is not parked under that, <laughs> that, that parking thing because, because, uh, you know, I really don't have to get out of the rain. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we struggle with uh, pride. Do you struggle with pride issues, uh, thinking that you're somebody or you're entitled to certain things because of who you are? Do you find yourself looking down on the nobodies of life, thinking that it's all about you? Well, that's part of what Luke wants you to hear in this story. When God came to find somebody for the most important job on the face of this earth, he came to a woman that the world considered to be a nobody. 
And he said, you're not a nobody to me. You're a somebody. And you matter to me. Well, nine months pass, and we find the story picking up where Mary and Joseph are headed to Bethlehem. They have to go to Bethlehem because um, Emperor Augustus has called for a census. Everybody has to go back to their hometowns, and the hometown for Joseph is Bethlehem. And, you know, it's kind of a tough deal. She's pregnant and walking and, or on a donkey, we're not sure. But, uh, you know, why does he do this? Because he's emperor, and he's a somebody, and he wants to know how much money he can collect taxes. And so everybody has to be, uh, uh, you know, put it bad because of his desire to do this. And so they, they're on this road to, to Bethlehem, and they get to Bethlehem, and there's no room at Joseph's parents' house. They have to go back to Joseph's parents where they live in Bethlehem, and there's no room at the house. Uh, that's because, um, you know, Joseph's parent, his dad was a carpenter, a little means, and uh, they didn't have a very big house according to history back in that time. And, and um, everybody else, other, other family members, already made their way back there. And so there's no room for Mary and Joseph. Now, in many translations, you're going to see there was no room for them in the inn. Well, the actual Greek word there is kataluma, which literally means guest room. So there's no room for Mary and Joseph in the guest room. Now, the truth is, in that day, when women had a baby, uh, according to the religious laws, everything that the woman touched, the room they were in during this process, was now ritually unclean for several days. And, and so if... if um, Mary would have had her baby in the guest room. That meant nobody could have stayed in there. Uh, and everything around the house that she had touched would have been considered ritually unclean. And, and you got all these people trying to find a place to stay. So, so they, they take Mary and Joseph, they put them downstairs where they would have put their animals and brought them in for the night. This is actually how most of the homes in that day were built. They were built over a cave where the uh, animals could be brought in underneath the house and, and gated in for shelter for the evenings. So... Mary and Joseph have their baby in a stable in a place where the animals are kept for the night. Actually, when you go to the Holy Land today, you can go to visit the, the place where um, Jesus was born. It's called the uh, Church of the Nativity. I've got a picture of here. When you go inside the church, you'll see there underneath that altar, there's a hole that has a star around it, reminding you of the star that was shown over Bethlehem that night. And you can kneel at, under this altar, you can place your hand down in the hole and actually touch the stone floor of the cave where Jesus was born. And in doing that, you remember that this is where it all began, um, that the Word made flesh came in Jesus Christ in this place. And it just gives you the idea of, of that, the, the building. You can go downstairs and you actually see it too, but it's just a, a wonderful reminder of this. And you know from the birth story, we remember that Jesus was not placed in one of these nice, sanitary, comfortable baby beds like we have today for our children. Uh, he was um, placed in a feeding trough, and scholars say that it was most likely not made of wood like we have in our scenes, that it, wood was hard to come by in those days, but it was probably made out of stone. The typical uh, feeding trough that you find under the caves of most homes in that time was made out of stone, so there would have been hay put in this stone feeding trough. And that's where Jesus would have been laid. Are you getting the message that Luke is trying to convey here? I mean, if, if Luke's gospel is trying to convey to us something about who God is, what God is really like, and what we are called to be like as his followers, what is God trying to say through this story? Well, I'll tell you one other interesting thing about this story we find. And that's about Bethlehem. Bethlehem is actually, there's only a wall that separates it now from Jerusalem. It's all part of what's the main city there. And uh, it, it's right on the edge, and it's on the edge of the desert. 
And when you go to Bethlehem today, this is looking out across the desert. If you notice in the background, you see that mountain there? Uh, if you get a, the next view, it's a closer one. You notice that there's no, the mountain has a flat top to it. Why in the world does it have a flat top? Well, that's because it is a man-made mountain. It was made by King Herod. And uh, King Herod actually tore down the mountain that you see on the left there to move it and build it o- build over there. Now, why in the world would anybody tear down a mountain to build another mountain? Well, because he could. <laughs> I mean, he's a king. He's a somebody. And so he decides to build himself a mountain. But on the top of the mountain, if you take the aerial view up there, you can see that he, this is where King Herod built his palace. And it was an elaborate palace. I mean, everything you can imagine was up there. He even had an indoor swimming pool up there. So the, the servants had to haul water across the desert up this mountain to fill his swimming pool and keep that going. Herod was a big deal back then. He could have anything he wants. And he walks out on his palace. There's a veranda that you walk out to, and you can see there. He, he walked out, and he looked over the city of Jerusalem and of Bethlehem right in front of him, and he could see the house that had the cave where Jesus was placed in a stone feeding trough in a stable, which kind of calls into question uh, what makes somebody a somebody and somebody a nobody in this world, doesn't it? It's quite a contrast. So Jesus is born in a stable where they keep the animals at night. He was placed in a, a stone feeding trough. And I was thinking about that, contrasting that with, you know, where babies are born today. Um, you have today, you're born in these birthing rooms that have just almost everything you can imagine. Uh, they've got uh, everything the, the mother and dad needs, the baby needs. Even the family can come in there and they can sit in the sitting room with them and they can uh, spend the night or whatever. Just everything takes place in this wonderful room that has all the comforts of home and all the resources you need. And when the baby's born, who are the people that you invite to first come and see and to hold your baby? I was blessed to be able to go to both of my grandchildren's uh, births and to be the, the first ones to, to see them and to hold them. What a privilege that was. Well, who are the first people that come to visit Jesus, God's son? I mean, for us, we invite our parents, our, our, our close friends, our siblings, our family members. But on, when Jesus is born, this unusual group of people show up who had been personally invited by God. You remember who they were? Well, you know the story. The shepherds, we're told. An angel of the Lord comes to a group of shepherds keeping their flock by night, and he invites them to be the first people to see and to hold his child. This is how we read in the Scripture. The angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you, shepherds, good news of great joy for all people. To you, shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the child wrapped in bands of cloths, swaddling clothes, lying in an animal's feeding trough, a manger. And so they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe just as it had been told to them. And that day, the shepherds were the lowest on the social uh, totem pole, the ladder that you can imagine. They had the, 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 the lowest job possible. And the night shift shepherds, they were the lowest of the shepherds. Uh, and so they were truly just nobodies. I mean, they owned no property uh, except the sheep they had. And those sheep grazed on other people's property, which kind of made where they didn't like shepherds so much because they're always grazing on their property. They didn't smell good. 
uh, hardly ever took a bath. Uh, they were uneducated, and they lived on the fringes of society, uh, outskirts there. Even today, shepherds in Israel are among the lowest in society, their social status. Uh, this is the typical uh, thing you would see if you're driving outside around Jerusalem area. You see the shepherd there. That structure right in front of him to the left, that's the shepherd's home where they live. Um, they li- their living conditions, this is a very typical living conditions. This is the Bedouin shepherds that you'll see out on the outskirts of Jerusalem even today. Uh, these were the nobodies. They're still considered to be the nobodies, the uh, Aretz of society even today. And yet, God invites these night shift shepherds to be the first people to come and to see and to hold his son. What is God saying through this? He's saying, you know, the world may consider you to be a nobody. But to me, you're somebody. And I'm going to give you the greatest honor of anybody on earth. I'm going to let you come and be the first to see and to hold my son. To those of you in this congregation this morning that may feel like you're a nobody, I hope you will hear this gospel message today. For the message to you is, in God's eyes, you're not a nobody. You're a somebody. And God loves you. And God cares about you. And God has come for you. And to the somebodies of this world, may we hear this message that it's not, if you begin to think it's all about you, you begin to think that um, you're above everybody else, part of your mission in life is to be a part of helping the nobodies to be somebodies, to helping them to realize that there's somebody in God's eyes, that God loves them, God cares about them. That's our mission in life. When we do that, we become authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we just thank you for your love and for who you are. We thank you for this story of how your son was born in an animal shelter and he slept in a feeding trough and how you invited the night shift shepherds to be your honored guest. When we hear that story, God, we are convicted of our own pride and our tendency to think of ourselves as somebodies. Help us to look around us to see those who might be feeling like nobodies, those who are hurt, those who are alone, invisible, marginalized, rejected by society. God, let us be instruments of yours to remind them that they matter and that they're loved by you. And in your eyes, there's somebody, not a nobody. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us, let us